It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. And if you didn't think today was important enough, there are three of us here, which is usually a good indication that something <laughs> important is happening in the world of politics. It's a bit crunch day for Rishi Sunak, isn't it? Yeah, it's a day of jeopardy for the Prime Minister. Centrist Conservative MPs are unhappy at his Rwanda plans. Right-wing MPs, well, they're even more unhappy. Rishi Sunak has a working majority of 56, remember, which means uh, he'll only need 29 of them to vote against him to face defeat in the Commons. Of course, if some of them uh, abstain, that complicates the numbers. But that is You've not been sitting large... down with your spreadsheet and trying I to have decide been, how I've many. Been... Like, guess who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even if he wins today, it's only going to save his skin until January when we're going to have another test of this bill in Parliament. But look, the last time the bill was defeated at second reading, Parliament wasn't even televised, although there were radio broadcasts. And in case you were wondering, Ewan, it was 1986 when Margaret Thatcher lost a vote on her shops bill, which would have ended government regulation on Sunday shopping. Uh, and, and now we're all great fans of Sunday shopping, so it seems like a very long time ago. I also learned in the process of looking looking up the details of that bill that it was the 27th attempt to try and, uh, when they finally did remove the rules on Sunday trading in, in 1986. What does it say about Britain that's so controversial that Sunday shopping well, on Sundays? Well, it was of a time, wasn't it? I think that's really a big deal. In Just like the immigration bill, actually, it's religious and it's like a four-day week would be controversial now. It's actually quite a good compromise, isn't it? Because we kept Sunday a bit special, but you still go shopping. <laughs> this conversation has taken a very unexpected turn. Let's go back to the challenges of what Rishi Sunak is facing today. We've been catching up with our UK political editor about this a little earlier. But that's the kind of million dollar question that we're all trying to work out is what is the strength of the rebellion? And there's sort of a few key numbers you need to keep in mind today. One is 29. 29 is the number of rebels who, if they vote against the government, will will crash the bill at second reading. Um, second reading is a technical term for the first vote on, on the bill. But also you need to, we need to watch out for abstentions as well, people who just st- who just don't vote either way on the bill. And if around 57 people don't uh, vote, then that could also bring it down. Or a mixture of both people voting against and abstentions. But to anyone who's just coming to this story and looking at how many prime ministers the UK has had, they'll surely be thinking that the rebels must know that their own party will face electoral oblivion if this is treated as a vote of confidence in the prime minister and he loses. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And, and the, but they're using it, Lizzie, as a way of holding his feet to the fire, right? But I think we're back in, back in Brexit wars again. They don't, the rebels, the, the hardline pro-Brexit rebels, and this is the same bunch of people who rebelled against Theresa May and eventually brought her down, they almost don't care, right? Because they think it's an existential point. They think that the, the Tory party will lose the election if they don't show to voters that the Rwanda plan works. And they think that by toughening it up, they will show that to voters. Prime Minister argues that it's as tough as it can be. And that if they vote it down, basically, it, it, it won't go through and it will break international law. Some some on the, the Tory factions are critical of the updated plan. MPs on the right are saying it risks being blocked by the courts again. Well, those on the left, the wets, the one nation, as we call them, are saying it could ignore international law. How much or how coherent is that position from the One Nation Tory group as well? Because they're a much larger group than the ERG. And and how much sway do they hold within the broader party? Yes, you're right. Well, the the interesting point about them is they they claim they have 106 members, which they do. um, But of those, only 30 uh, are on the back benches and therefore could rebel against the government without losing um, their government positions. The strength of the ERG is is another question that's up for, up for debate. Basically, it's not just the ERG, it's the ERG plus friends, the New Conservatives, uh, the Northern Research Group, um, and another couple of smaller groupings. Whether they combine to make one caucus is is unclear at the moment. Um, they've got in to see some of them have gone in to see Rishi Sunak for breakfast in Downing Street this morning. I think they're having smoked salmon, um, and they very labour. Um, and they're discussing whether to um, whether they can back the bill at this stage. And if what's so extraordinary about all this is that it is that it's second reading, right? No, a government hasn't been defeated on second reading since Margaret Thatcher and the Sunday trading rules in the 80s. Most people tend to hold their fire until committee stage, which is when the, when the amendments go down. So if, he, if he's defeated tonight, we're into kind of, has he lost the confidence of the party? Um, Keir Stam will probably stand up and say, this guy can't govern. You know, it's really high stakes stuff, basically. But if the bill actually passes because of the support of the One Nation conference, are we to conclude that since the return of David Cameron to top off being a foreign secretary, that there's been a marked shift to the centre ground? I think these people are always there. It's just they're quite quiet, right? They they don't make as much noise as as the right wing of the party. Um, I, I think the other thing is, is even if the bill passes tonight and i i'm going to go out on a limb and i think it probably will even even if it does then you know the reprieve is only till after christmas um when the bill comes back for its committee stages i think on january the 8th um and that's when loads of amendments will get put down so so even if richie sunak wins tonight it doesn't mean that he's won outright he's he's got more skirmishes to come how is how is labor playing all of this kitty they're basically like sitting back with their feet up going oh my goodness look at that lot right actually kisama has got a speech today um in which he will do his i'm the sensible you know safe pair of hands shtick that he does all the time um as a kind of marked contrast to the sort of infighting that's going on in the tory party so that was our UK political editor, Kitty Donaldson. I just love it when she goes out on a limb and tells us what's going to happen. But we'll be speaking to Ellen Milligan a bit later as well. She was at that Keir Starmer rally that Kitty mentioned. The only thing that Kitty thinks uh, the government's going to survive, I guess it would be pretty serious for backbenchers to go out on a limb and to inflict a defeat like that. But there is a lot of unhappiness uh, on 
both sides. So it will, it will be fascinating to see. Yeah, and as we've been hearing uh, from our reporters over the past couple of days as well, this is a lot of the the Brexit era wounds returning to the front. But as you pointed out, you and this, there are some things that are different from the Theresa May era. Yeah, it does feel a little bit Theresa May, doesn't it? But because she never lost in all those votes, those interminable debates in Parliament, she never actually lost a second reading. Uh, of a bill. It just feel, it feels like she lost a lot of votes, but there wasn't a second reading. So if it does happen today, it will be the first time in a very long time. I just got to think that it's exactly the same fault line. Brexit, immigration, it feels like Groundhog Day. Well, if you're looking for the views from within the Tory party that could derail the Prime Minister, you don't have to go far. Over the past two and a half years, GB News has become home for politicians turned broadcasters, including Nigel Farage and Richard Tice, but also prominent Tories Jacob Rees-Mogg and Lee Anderson. And that's before Boris Johnson joins the lineup in the new year. We're joined now by GB News' editorial director, Michael Booker. Michael, welcome to the programme. Thank you for speaking to us. Has GB News become a mouthpiece for one part of the Tory party. And and was that a, a conscious idea for the channel? No, I don't think it has, to be perfectly honest. I think that when we've chosen certain presenters at certain times, it's because um, they have struck a chord with the general public. You know, take Lee Anderson. Um, he's on one hour a week across the entire network. So not a huge... Uh, amount of time there but the reason why we thought lee was perfect for gb news is because he talks and thinks just like uh the general public talk and for far too long you know um we believe that that voice wasn't being heard lee anderson is the guy that i you know the guy that i grew up with uh in the northeast of england i think there's lots of lee anderson's out there he's had an amazing political journey uh, he was, I think he uh, he was in the Labour Party for a long, long time. He then uh, switched over to the Tory Party when he believed the Labour Party no longer stood for what he uh, thought it stood uh, should stand for. Um, he now, you know, the, we're now seeing another journey with Lee. He's uh, the deputy chairman of the Tory Party, and uh, as as we speak now, uh, he doesn't know whether to vote for the Rwanda bill or not. So, I think he for is just like. Lots of people in the general public is, is that they don't know which way this country is going to go, mm-hmm. um, and, and they want that saying it. The other, the other Tory party, um, the Tory MPs that we've used, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Now, Jacob, uh, again, he does four hours a week uh, across the network, but uh, he speaks. Um, I mean, he's just a fantastic broadcaster. We didn't realise he was going to be you know, as, as good as he, he has, but he he struck a chord as well, a very thoughtful chord. Uh, with a lot of our viewers and listeners. Um, Michael, you've been mentioning the Rwanda bill tonight and Lee Anderson may be one of the rebels. Is it actually Mm -hmm. worth killing the Sunak government over? Um... Look, I mean that's that's for the Tory party to decide, and that's what 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 they need to decide what they're going to do. I, you know, I'm not part of the Tory party. I work for GB News, and I think if you look at the entire output of GB News, it's not just Tory TV and Tory radio. So I think that any perception of that is wrong. What I do think is that. Um, those people that we have chosen to be uh, politicians who also broadcast uh, chime a lot with the general public. So I, I don't, you know, I think whatever the Tory party do, we will be there to report on. We are not part of that. But is immigration an important issue for your audience then? And, and thus, does it get a lot of prominence, undue prominence on the coverage provided by GB News? 
Um, I don't think so. I, I think uh, it's clearly a very important issue to uh, a lot of people. That's why we are where we are uh, as a country. Look at the, we see the pictures um, of people coming across uh, on the boats. Clearly, people are in a very lots of them in desperate uh, circumstances. Um, but it, it's clear that this is of great concern uh, to the general public. They're also very concerned at the amount the amount of legal uh, migration that's going on as well. So I think uh, it doesn't get undue prominence on GB News. Uh, we cover lots of other different topics as well as uh, the migration crisis going on but it's clear you can't avoid the fact that it is it's a huge problem for the political class at the moment and it is having an impact on public services so i think uh, to accuse gb news of um, of playing it i think that would be wrong because i look at the coverage on all the other tv news channels we watch them very closely and you know that they all do uh, as much uh, as we do on this this topic um but do you think GB News, GB, News was, sorry, GB News was set up um, to be a different sort of a news channel, to give um, a, a voice to a lot of people who are very unhappy as to how this country has been ran. And that's what we're trying to, uh, that's the voices we're trying to get on, on air uh, on both TV and radio. Michael, do you think bringing back Boris Johnson or bringing him on board is going to destabilise the Conservative Party further? Do you think it'll bolster his chances of a political comeback? In terms of putting on GB News? Uh, no, I, I don't know. It's whatever Boris Johnson wants to do with his future as a politician, it's it's up to him. We uh, approached him because we thought you know, he was he, he would be a fantastic broadcaster. Um, and we think he's got something to say to uh, the nation and, and the world. Boris wants to do a show that shows the best of Britain uh, globally. Um, and that is, again, what GB News is all about, showing the best of Britain. We haven't uh, brought him in, in in any ways thinking there's going to be some sort of political stalking horse. Again, that's not what we're about. We're about trying to give a voice and some sort of different service to the British people that they weren't getting before. OK, and so you've been brought, you've been actually involved in quite, quite a lot of campaigns as well, which is an innovation, too, in, in the broadcasting space when it comes to news channels, things like Don't Kill Cash, for example. How do you pick the issues that you campaign on? Well, Don't Kill Cash was an interesting one because it was simply, it's like, when I was first brought in from a newspaper background, uh, we wanted to do more campaigning because um, you know, TV hadn't particularly done an awful lot of that. And Mainly for regulatory reasons when it comes to news coverage. Um, well, possibly for regulatory reasons, but, you know, Sky News did um, um, a campaign to bring political debates into... Um, in, into the uh, intellections and things like that. So you know it, there is there is uh, precedence uh, for this. But what we wanted to do is to choose uh, these campaigns in the way that we used to do with newspapers, and that is we, we listen to the we used to listen to the readers. Now we listen to the viewers and the listeners. So do you and see the campaigning uh, branch of the channel growing or evolving? Um, if if we can do, yeah. I mean, we want to be a service to the British people. Um, with Don't Kill Cash, just going back to how that came about, it was, um, we, I think it was a family member of uh, one of the staff that said that their their mother uh, couldn't pay for cash in the post office. And it was simply a case of, actually, there's probably quite a few people out there who uh, feel in the same way. 
And when we launched it, uh, we didn't expect to get the reaction we did. And in the end, we had over 300,000 people sign the petition, which was simply to keep cash as a means of uh, exchange until 2050. So it was a campaign just to keep the status quo effectively. And, and it did chime with a lot of people. It wasn't particularly uh, politically controversial. We had cross-party support. Mick Lynch supported it as well. So um, it was. It's what we wanted to do is provide the service for the British people, really, and like we did with newspapers. When I was editor of the Sunday Express, the, the best thing I ever did was we launched a campaign to uh, raise, try and help £50 million for the motor neuron disease research uh, charity. Now, they'd had the backing of some celebrities like Doddy Weir who had also, and Rob Burrow who, mm. who had had uh, who had the disease and they'd had it they'd had trouble getting getting proper political support for it so at the sunday express and this was in my last six months there we did the story every week for about 25 weeks and then in november 2021 um we heard from the government that they were giving the 50 million to motor neuron disease research okay. and so it was thanks it to is the something though the the, the broadcasting Sorry. regulator Ofcom, though, has is investigating GB News over some of its campaigning work. Is that something that's going to change your approach to how you do things like this? Um, well, we'll have to wait and see. You know, um, every day is a school day, so we'll learn um, what they think uh, shortly on that. But you know, it. it, it whatever happens there, we would we do want to be a campaigning channel. We do want to be of help to the people out there. Uh, people used to. As I say, going back to when I was on a newspaper, people would write in and we'd try and help them. And it's a similar thing to what we're trying to do with GB News. We do okay. want it to be a service are, to the British public. Are you trying to help the Conservative Party within going into the next election? There's been three PM since GB News has gone on air. You're now giving, yeah. you know, space to some of the prominent voices in that party to be able to air their views on your channel. Are you trying to influence the direction of the, the Conservative Party? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're just uh, providing a service. We have certain presenters who work for certain political parties, but we're not there to influence. We're there for, they're there to, they've got um, freedom to broadcast, obviously, within the Ofcom code uh, and provide interesting programming for our viewers and listeners. Uh, we're not there to try and affect political change or do anything um, to, you know, we're not some sort of... Um, so, so will your will your election coverage, for example, look different to other news channels? You're going into your, you know, a, a general election that you'll be covering next year. Yeah, I think it will look different because we'll be focusing on the British people rather than the politicians themselves. Obviously, the politicians who we do employ, who are standing, won't be able to. Uh, uh, present any shows anyway so that gets rid of that problem what we want to focus on is the british people you know we call ourselves the the people's channel and uh we want it to, to reflect that we want to be out there we want to be uh you know we've done certain things like people's forums which we did last year which okay. uh, involved liz truss uh going out to a working men's club in the north of england and getting questions direct from the public and that's what we want to do we want this to okay. be an election for the people not about the politicians all right, Michael Booker, Editorial Director at GB News, thank you very much for speaking to us. Now, while we've been following the ructions in the Tory party, Labour has been trying to put its spin on events today. Keir Starmer's been speaking in Milton Keynes this morning. We're all stuck in their psychodrama, all being dragged down to their level. We cannot let the Tories take this country down with them. 
We cannot let them kick the hope out of our future. Well, our reporter Ellen Milligan's been on the road today for Bloomberg. Ellen, what was the Labour leader's message today? Well, he was using this speech to mark the four-year anniversary since the 2019 election that Labour lost so dramatically. But he was also seeking to capitalise on what he just described there as the Tory psychodrama in the House of Commons, whereby different factions of the Conservative Party are um, rebelling against the government over the Rwanda legislation. And um, Rishi Sunak potentially faces a rebellion on a key vote on that legislation this evening. So you heard Kisama talk about that Rwanda legislation, but you also heard him talk something that I haven't heard from him before about um, Rishi Sunak's government importing US Trump-style wedge woke issues that they seek to divide the country by doing, and that this next election should be about a much deeper, um, more visceral um, set of anything how they're planning to achieve that target for legal migration because it seems you'd need to have tougher legislation than the Tories it's interesting their messaging on on the migration target hasn't been um, very uh, unified I would say you've had different ministers kind of putting different targets on it I think the Treasury Minister last week spoke about a target of 200,000 Kirstam has sought to not put a what he calls an arbitrary target on migration, but has vowed to bring numbers down overall. But you're right, he's not, his, their messaging over net migration hasn't been entirely clear. And the measures that the government announced last week, including salary, raising salary thresholds, the Labour Party hasn't sought to oppose those either. Now, Ellen, we've been discussing today the parliamentary arithmetic, Rishi Sunak, uh, whether he'll get his bill through Parliament. But there's actually a lot of problems for him if he does get it through Parliament, isn't there? There's a lot of constitutional issues around this. Yes, and even if the vote goes through tonight, there are um, other votes that can be done for, through uh, via different stages of the bill passing through Parliament in the new year as well. So that also is a possibility. But yes, as you say, we've written this story today um, about the constitutional kind of almost crisis that this legislation will put the UK in. Because, you know, last month we had this UK Supreme Court um, declaring that Rwanda was not a safe country and that this Rwanda policy was unlawful. And what Sunak is seeking to do by this legislation is to change the facts of that. Um, but not only do that, but limit people's ability to appeal their deportations um, via UK courts, not just international courts. And that's something that we've been talking to lawyers about who are concerned um, that this bill asserts supremacy over the judiciary at the expense of rights established over centuries of English common law. Um, you know, we spoke to one um, lawyer who's director of the Chatham House is International Law Programme, who's just said it was this bill is extraordinary, but for all the wrong reasons. And um, it's also precedent setting so risk kind of a slippery path um, for more legislation like this to occur. But surely the government's legal advice is telling them something else or how could they be going forward with all this? Well, yeah, they published um, the government's legal advice uh, yesterday um, to in an attempt to prove that it was legally sound, but also I think that was largely done. It was quite an unusual step actually to publish legal advice to um, get the more moderate Conservatives who were considering abstaining on this legislation or voting against it, to get them back on side, to persuade them um, that this is legally sound. 
Um, and actually, it worked. The One Nation Caucus, which is about 100 MPs, said that they would vote for this legislation, which um, kind of kills off one potential rebellion in the Conservative Party. Of course, there are other factions, particularly on the right. I think there's about five different factions who call themselves different names, but they represent the right of the party who still haven't said whether they're voting for or against or abstaining on the legislation. How unprecedented is this? Amongst the lawyers you spoke to, what was their their feeling about what the government's doing? I mean, there is history of this. You saw this with um, Boris Johnson trying to broke Parliament, the UK Supreme Court stepping in, that famous Daily Mail headline um, calling Supreme Court judges enemies of the people. Um, you, you, this illegal migration bill that they did pass earlier this year, they had a, a kind of disclaimer in that bill saying that this uh, we can't guarantee this is compatible with international obligations. But I think this Rwanda legislation takes it a step further because the Supreme Court did rule that it wasn't a safe country to send asylum seekers to because there was a real risk of them being deported back to their home country, which potentially posed a threat to their lives. Um, and this legislation seeks to declare that Rwanda is a safe country and that that is possible. So, so again, it's it's really kind of Britain doesn't have a constitution, and this relationship between um, the law and Parliament um, really matters, and and it's it's risking that relationship and that dynamic. Right, Ellen, we're getting you in on the sweepstakes. Kitty Donaldson has gone out on a limb. She says that this bill is going to pass tonight. Is it? Do you agree? You know what Keir Starmer just said the same. He said there'll be lots of shouting and screaming, but that he thinks it will pass tonight. I I think it I think it will be close. I think the whips will be really, really worried about the numbers. Um, but I think, you know, the breakfast meeting Sunak had today, that was intentional to try and lower those numbers. But as I said before, just if the bill does pass today, it doesn't mean that Sunak is out of the woods. In the new year, you could see him defeated in other votes on this same legislation. And more trouble for the PM. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us there reporting from that Keir Starmer speech in Milton Keynes. That's Ellen Milligan, our reporter. Well, while Westminster has been absorbed by the drama around that Rwanda vote later on, we did have a thought on economic matters for you as well. And this is a new review of the UK's foreign direct investment policy, showing that the UK needs more foreign investment and needs to do more to attract it. This was an, after an in-depth consultation with business led by Lord Richard Harrington. We spoke to him earlier and he said that policy consistency is key to attract more investment. In terms of foreign direct investment, up to now we've been very reactive. In government in London or in the regions, if a company comes to us and they're interested in investing here, it's slow and it's cumbersome and often they have to go through different departments, but actually eventually a package is brought up with. The other countries are better organised, they have a concierge service, they have an investment minister at very senior level, in fact many of the investment ministers are in their cabinets, Mm. and we have to develop a one-stop shop for prospective investors. And the barriers that we have, for example, the money side of it, it's a whole selection of grants, pots, competitions and everything. It has to change. It has to be much slicker. And then we get on to the obstacles like skills, the grid, visas, planning. You know, there's a lot of work to do. Cross-government working is necessary. When I did the uh, Ukrainian refugee programme for Boris Johnson, it was cross-government. Mm. So I think we've learnt that cross-government is the way forward. Um, My review really calls for the investment side of stuff to be organised in a similar way. 
But it's also about scale. The EU and the United States are offering enormous packages. You know, they're sucking in the best minds and businesses by offering subsidies for the most cutting edge technology and developments. And the UK has basically said we can't stump up that sort of money. Well, it does. But things, you know, have improved a lot. When I was business minister at Bayes in 2016, we invested about eight billion or nine billion, I think, in research and development. That's now 29 billion. It has gone up, but we don't hear about it as much. But the way we organise ourselves, you really wouldn't know. We have really done quite well other than it's covered by the fact that renewables are a really successful part of foreign direct investment. But the underlying is not good enough, and my reforms that I'm suggesting, I hope, will help remedy that balance. The Chancellor, in principle, has accepted your recommendations. How fast can progress be made to improve this? Well, the Chancellor has... One of the core recommendations is to set up a very senior-level investment committee chaired by himself with its own secretariat to set out a new business investment strategy. That will happen in the first quarter of next year. The Chancellor is very engaged in this and uh, they didn't accept uh, the recommendations just because it was a good press release. There is substance behind it and there are a group of very senior officials working on its implementation. Um, In terms of appointing an investment minister, that's Mm. for the Prime Minister to decide when he does that. But he has accepted it. This was signed off by the Prime Minister, this this review. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping what I put in the report was that it should be in the first quarter of next year. That sounds great, but this Prime Minister is under pressure. This week alone he faces you know, a major test. He could lose on one of his key pillars of policy, on the Rwanda policy, if the vote goes against him. How seriously can we take you know, that view that things are going to move in the first quarter. We've got a general election next year. It's great that business is coming to a consensus about the radical and difficult work that needs to be done to improve economic growth in Britain. But, you know, are politicians listening at all able to deliver that change? Well, first of all, I fully accept your point. I mean, the, the management time at number 10 with Rwanda is completely out of proportion to the actual issue itself. But that's what politics is. Um, the thing about my report is that it's not really a question for Rishi. I mean, when he appoints the investment ministry, it is. But the Treasury and the Business Department are fully engaged on this. And uh, what I needed was the Prime Minister's approval, which is what I got. So operationally implementing it, I don't think is dependent on the, the table tennis of number 10. Um, and I would like to make the point that Labour have been very supportive of this as well. Is that also, more importantly, the target of all of this? Is coming to a consensus on the economic needs of Britain and for whatever political party it is to implement it. Excellent. That's a really good point. And I, I have really tried to plug in Labour and everyone. So there's a consensus on this because people are fed up. I mean, people point to three or four policy changes within one political party. So the last thing they want is to accept this report, it's implemented, and then the opposition, if they are elected, as it looks now from the polls, they say we're not doing it. So I've been very careful and we've got good cross-party support on this. How do you tackle the issue of policy inconsistency in this area, though? It's changes to policy that we hear often from business groups that say makes their lives much more difficult when it comes to making decisions. It does, and my review found that. Um, And I can point to examples where policies have changed three times within one uh, 
political party of government. Net zero is a very good case of that. You know, 2016 in our industrial strategy, which I helped co-write, we came to the conclusion following industry, economists, modelers, scientists, 2050 for internal combustion engines to be finished. Well, that was Lord Richard Harrington there outlining his proposal to boost foreign direct investment to the UK. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.